Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. So uh, in my early 20s, uh, I was working for a construction equipment rental company. And so we sent out like large pieces of equipment, uh, bulldozers and excavators and, and crane trucks and, and all of, you know, I mean, that literally care, you know, can lift up tens of thousands of pounds. And so uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, they should not let 20 year olds uh, play <laughs> with that equipment. But uh, so one day, Uh, I needed to move the uh, two crane trucks that were in front of these trailers so I could get access to these trailers. And I was still pretty new to understanding how all of this stuff worked. And one of the things I loosely, I knew enough to be dangerous, was that uh, these semi-trucks were built off of uh, a pressure system for their braking. And so when you started one of them, you had to wait for the pressure to build up before you could begin moving, you know, for the brakes to release. So uh, I had to move two of them. So I said, man, I don't want to wait here and do each one individually. So, uh, you know, pressed in uh, the brake, turned it on, and let it get going. Jumped over the other truck, did the same thing, hit in the brake, turned it on, and let it get going. And so I'm just sitting there in the truck, because uh, this is before, like, phones were a thing, so I didn't have anything to do. I'm um, just, like, you know, thinking. And um, so... I can't remember what I was thinking about, but what I remember was all of a sudden I felt my truck that I was in start moving forward. And so I was like, oh, and I hit the brake, but I kept moving forward. And then I realized it's not my truck moving forward, it's the truck next to me moving backwards, <laughs> right? And nobody's in it. So I'm like, ah, and I get out of that truck and I swing around to the other one and I get in just in time and I hit the brakes before it hits the trailer behind it, right? I'm like, oh. Thank goodness. So my heart's going through, you know, just out of my chest. And I look over and that truck (laughs) is rolling backwards. And so ah, I run and I go and I get to that one. And just as I'm opening the door to get in, it hits the trailer behind it, sends it careening down the side of the hill and smashes through the fence that's down there. Right. And so I'm like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Now I have to walk into the office and I have to let my boss know that somebody broke in last night (laughs) and sent a trailer down the hill and I just discovered it. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I did not do that. I owned up to it. Oh. But that's what I wanted to do, right? Actually, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to run away. I wanted to run away and never come back, just mail my final check. That's fine. Um, But I I did not want to confess to this this stupid mistake that I had made and and the consequences that came came with it, right? Long story short, um, I did keep my job, and I also learned how to use a post hole digger and repair a fence. And so it it was a win, right? It was a win. I don't know. Have you ever done anything, like made a mistake or done something like like that, where you had to come back and confess uh, to what you did. You know, maybe it was a, you know, you made an honest mistake, or maybe you made a foolish mistake. Uh, maybe you did something, uh, you know, that uh, you know you hurt somebody or, or something along those lines. You got to come back and and confess, right? And 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 take those next steps. And you know, admitting whether you've you've made a mistake, or admitting uh, when you've hurt someone else, or admitting when you've been caught doing something wrong, it's it's humbling. 
right? It's very, it's very humbling very quickly, uh, and no one likes it, right? Um, and, it's, and those kinds of situations are challenging for, for every one of us. And at the same time, there's an even bigger challenge that uh, you and I face. And that bigger challenge is this, is that every one of us faces the overwhelming challenge of a broken relationship with God, right? That every single one of us faces that in our lives. And so the Bible teaches us that when we sin, and, and when we talk about sin, what we're talking about is when we lead our lives under our own leadership. We take charge. We're going to do what we want to do, independent of who God is, of his guidance, uh, of his wisdom, right? That's sin. And when we do that, it actually creates separation between us and God. And we end up being excluded from his presence, we, we end up being excluded from a relationship with him, which, is, by the way, is what we're made for. Uh, if you didn't know that, every single one of us is created by God to, to know him, to love him, and to rely on him uh, moment by moment, day by day. Uh, that's actually what real life looks like. And what sin does is sin actually separates us from God. And since God is also the author of life, what comes with that separation in the relationship is also separation from life itself. That's actually how death entered in to our world, right? And if you and I, if we die separated from God now, then we actually exist for all of eternity separated from God as well. That's how, that's how that works. And so you can see that, that this overwhelming challenge every single one of us has to face. And so the, the, this truth begs the question, Right? It's, just, it's just lingering out there, it's hanging out there, and it's this, what do we do? How, how are we supposed to respond to the sin in our own lives? And, and is there even a solution? Is there something we can do? And if so, what is it that we're supposed to do? What is it that we do? Um, well, if you haven't already, as, uh, as Josh asked you, if you open up to Psalm 51, that's where we're going to be spending our time today. We're actually in a series called Hope Unshakable, where we're actually journeying through some key psalms and just asking the question, uh, where do these psalms point us to have hope, right? And so uh, if this is your first time, I do want to say welcome. Thanks for being here today. My name is Fritz. I'm one of the pastors here, and I do want to welcome uh, our online campus, and thanks for joining us uh, there. And then a uh, big shout-out, just thank you to everybody who's here uh, this morning, and, and glad you're worshiping uh, with us here as well. And so uh, we're really glad for the family. But Psalm 51, uh, if you're looking at it, there's a small note up at the top. It's, uh, yours might be in, in small capital letters, uh, but it says this, right? To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, if you're not familiar with what this heading is pointing to, uh, let me give you the quick version on, on what this is pointing to and what prompted King David to write this psalm. By the way, uh, everything I'm going to tell you, you can find in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. I would encourage you later to go back and, and read that and see what all happens there. But King David, who is Israel's uh, second king, uh, he, he reigned kind of towards the end of the 11th uh, century B.C., the beginning of the 10th century B.C. Um, what, basically what happened here is he saw a woman that he was attracted to, and since he's king... Uh, he, he slept with her, right? He just made that decision. And, uh, but he knew that this woman, her name was Bathsheba, was married. Uh, she was married to another man by the name of Uriah. And Uriah was actually away on the front lines fighting a battle. Um, but David slept with her anyways. And that's the scenario. 
And so then, uh, after a little bit, uh, Bathsheba sent an invitation to David. They met on the Maury Povich show, never good. And Maury said, uh, Maury said, Bathsheba is pregnant, and David, you are the father, right? And David's like, ah, you know, what's good? It's, Maury wasn't filming in Israel at that time, so don't, uh, you know, listen, okay, calm down. So, so what David does is to cover up his adultery, he brings Uriah back from the battle, uh, and he's like, Uriah, you haven't seen your wife for a long time. Here's a bottle of wine and, and a $5 little Caesar's pizza. Uh, you know, have, you know, be with your wife, right? Uh, because if Uriah sleeps with Bathsheba, then problem solved, right? You don't have to worry about this anymore. But Uriah is like this man of honor and integrity. He's like a true warrior. And he refuses to enjoy the comforts of home while all the rest of his brothers are away from their families, sleeping on the ground, fighting battles. And so he just doesn't. He actually sleeps outside. David does a couple other things. It, doesn't, it, it never works. His cover-up fails. So he takes another approach. Conspiracy to murder. So what he does this is he sent Uriah back to the battle with secret orders to his commanders that put Uriah out on the front lines, and when the, and when the fighting is the fiercest, call a retreat in a way that leaves Uriah out there on his own, and he'll be killed in battle, right? And they, they do that because he's king, right? And, and Uriah is cut down. The plan worked. And so David married Bathsheba. The cover-up is good. It's all over. You go to 2 Samuel 12, and you see that, that the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan tells David a story. He says, David, there was a certain man. He was a poor man. And all he had was one small lamb. And he loved that lamb. He was actually a part of his family. Uh, it, it lived in the house with his kids, and, and, and they fed uh, this lamb at the table, and it fell asleep in his arms. And, and, and this, this man loved his lamb uh, more than anything. And then there was a rich man who had countless lambs, countless goats, countless rams, uh, everything. Well, he had a traveler stop by unexpectedly one day, and the rich man did not want to use one of his lambs or goats for the meal. So what he did was he took the poor man's one lamb that he loved deeply, and he served that for dinner. Right? Nathan's telling this story to David, and David is just, I mean, he is seething with anger in this moment. Actually, this is what David says. He says, that rich man deserves to die for what he did. He should pay back fourfold because of this despicable thing that he's done. What a wretched person. And Nathan says, you are that man. And David's like, you know, I thought I had this covered up. I thought I had this taken care of. But Nathan says, you are the man. You're the king. God has given you everything. And if that wasn't enough, he would have given you even more. And you stole another man's wife and you murdered him. Your sin stands before you. And so Psalm 51 is David's response to this moment in his life. This clear sin that's staring him in this face. This, the consequences that came out from it. And so this is what David wrote 
pouring his heart out. Look at verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. According, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You can, you can just feel the anguish in David's spirit, right? God, forgive me. I, I don't want to be known from, from that moment. That's, that's not who I am. I blew it. I, I know that you're merciful. I know that you're loving. I know that you can cleanse me. I know that you can redeem me. Please forgive me. You see that clearly just in these opening passages. And, and you know what David is doing? David is asking the question that we asked earlier. What do we do with our sin? What do, what do I do with my sin? How do we respond to sin in our own lives? Now, if, if you were here last week, we, we talked about Psalm 37, and, and really that psalm challenged us, encouraged us, guided us on how to deal with sin in the lives of other people, right? You remember that. Well, Psalm 51 goes the complete other route, shows up in our living room, right? And makes this really, really personal saying, how do we respond to the sin in our own lives? And what Psalm 51 clearly exposes is this. We must confess our sin to God. That, that, that's what you see with great clarity, that if you're going to find forgiveness... If you're going to receive uh, cleansing, if you're going to receive freedom from your sin, you must confess your sin to God, that there's just simply no other way. And, and what David does here is he goes beyond this general or universal understanding of sin, right? Because there, there's some people, when you start to talk about sin or you talk about our failures or our wrongdoings or, or the ways we lead our own lives independent of God, they'll say something like this, like, hey, man, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We all fall short. No one's perfect. And that's true. There's no doubt about that. Every one of us fall in that category, right? But there's something a little bit dismissive when we say things like that. What it does is it takes the weight of my own personal sin, and it, just, it spreads it out across all of us, Right? It, it removes the personal nature of our sin. It lacks ownership. And what David does is actually, in, these, in Psalm 51, he leans into this personalization of sin. He leans into ownership of sin. Look at, the, look at verses 3 through 6. He says, for, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Can you, can you relate to that? Right? Verse 4. Against, against you, I was talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so David says, yes, every person has sinned. Every person is a sinner, but I know what I've done. My sin is staring me in the face. Every time I look at Bathsheba, every time the name Uriah comes across, I, I'm reminded of it. I can't escape it. I can't hide from it. I can't conceal it. No one really knows, but I know. 
I know, and I can't escape my own personal sin. That's what David is saying here, right? He, he is owning his sin. He's not putting it off on other people. He's not blaming someone else. He's taking ownership for his actions and for his sin. And then within that, David makes this really profound statement regarding sin. He says this in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I suppose there's two ways to look at what David is saying there. And one way is this. It seems to be dismissive of our sin against one another, right? It's like, well, I don't really sin against you. I sin against, you know, I sin against God. And so in doing that, we kind of belittle the people that we've hurt. And we're essentially kind of saying to them, like, hey, suck it up, buttercup, right? You're going to be, it's going to be okay. I don't really sin against you. I sin against God, Right? But that's not what David is saying here. What, what he's not saying, he's not saying, you know, use, using Bathsheba for my own pleasure. Uh, conspiring against Uriah. Killing Uriah. Hey, man, no big deal. No, no big deal. That was against God. That wasn't against you. That's not what he's communicating here. But you know what he's doing? You know what he's doing instead, rather? In saying that his sin is against God, he's not removing weight from that. He's actually adding weight. He's actually adding weight to his sin in making this statement, right? He's saying, listen, the ways that I've hurt you includes God in that too. I've actually also, in sinning against you, I've sinned against him too. The ultimate judge, the creator of all people who are made in his likeness. And so sinning against Bathsheba, sinning against Uriah, sinning against my family, all of these actions are against God, and they actually carry the greatest weight. He's not minimizing here. He's not putting to the side. He, he has seen his sin in the light of God's holiness. And he's seen the insurmountable burden for every act of his self-leadership. And he does that comparison, right? You see it in verse 6. He does this comparison of himself in light of God's holiness and his perfection. He says this, Right? You delight in truth, I commit adultery. You teach wisdom, I commit murder. Right? And so what David is doing here, he's saying, listen, we, we are light years away from one another. God, you and I. In, in, in my own sin, we, we are so far. I am utterly sinful. I stand condemned in front of you. And what can I do? What, what can I really do here? Do, do you see how personally aware David is of his sin? Like he, he is feeling the weight of this, and especially in light of God's holiness, especially in light of, of, the, of the character of God, the tonnage of his sin is immeasurable, and it's weighing down on him. So you and I, <laughs> we are in the exact same position as David, right? But see, you and I, we, we have, uh, we've hurt other people, right? We've, we've slashed at other people with our words in moments of rage and anger. We've used our fists, maybe even weapons to inflict harm. We've, we've used others, right, for our own gain. We've used others for our own pleasure. We've used others to compare ourselves to, to feel just a little bit better or to feel vindicated in what we've done. We have intentionally ignored 
other people, hoping that they feel the weight of that and what it's like to be excluded. We've lived our lives for our own purposes, for our end goal, for our own end goals, sometimes even in the name of religion, right? I'm doing it for God, right? I'm doing it to leave a better life for my kids. That's, that's why I do this stuff, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But you have to catch this. All, all of our sin, all of your sin, all of my sin, right, against ourselves, against others, is also against God, right? It's also against God. And who, who among us has the capacity to stand up underneath the weight of all of that guilt and all of that condemnation, right? Who among us has that ability to do so? And so what the Bible says is, you must confess your sin to God. And so like David does here in Psalm 51, you've got to acknowledge your sin. You've got to own your sin. You've got to confess your sin to God. But we can't. We can't, right? Because we can't, because if we confess our sin, then that would require that we would have to admit that we were, that we're, that we're wonderfully made in his image, right? No, right? Like you would have to admit, if you're going to confess your sin, you would have to admit that you were wrong. That, that's the only way, that's the only pathway to confession of sin. See, there's humiliation in confessing your sin. It's, it's embarrassing to confess when we've messed up, either by accident, and it's especially embarrassing when we have to admit that we messed up on purpose, when we intentionally set out to hurt other people, when we intentionally set out to take advantage, when we intentionally tried to get by in a different situation, Right? No one wants to make the walk of shame to confession. The embarrassment and the shame are real, but even on that, like that's that's even still a little bit surfacey, even though that's real, and it's one of the things that keeps us from engaging in in confession. See, the, the core of our struggle to confess sin. It's not so much, I mean, it involves sin and embarrassment, but actually it 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 begs a deeper question. And, and there's a fear that's based on how is this question going to be answered. And the question is this. And maybe you've, maybe you've verbalized this very clearly. and maybe, maybe you've just kind of sensed it in your own self. But the question is this. If I confess my sin, if I admit that I have done things that are wrong, if I lay that right out, if I confess my sin, how can I know that I'm going to be forgiven? That's the underlying question. That, that, that's, that's the rock bottom on this thing. How can I know that, that I won't admit this massive burden, this way that I've intentionally blown it and, and made living for myself the priority, how do I know that if I share that, that I'm not just going to be left there hanging on to it and holding it at the end of it? How do I know that I'm actually going to be forgiven? You know, actually the Apostle John exposes that, that fear in one of his letters, um, he says that fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears has actually not been perfected in love. 
And, and so the one who is constantly has this, this thought in weighing down in their mind, how do I know I'm going to be forgiven? I don't know if I'm going to be forgiven. I'm not sure that I can be forgiven. says that person has actually not experienced true and genuine love. They actually don't know the truth. And so we're afraid. We're afraid to confess because we don't know that we'll be forgiven. We're just not sure. And so we're left. We're left crushed. We're left crushed under the, under the guilt of all of our sin. The condemnation of our sin, the weight of our sin pressing down us. Our, like David, our sin is ever before us. We can see it. Right? We're reminded. We can hear it. Hear it as almost if it's, as if it's beating underneath the planks of the floor of our house. Right? But oh, how much we want, we desire to confess. How much we desire to confess and be freed from it, right? Maybe you've heard of the poet uh, Edgar Allan Poe, but he, he highlights this. Uh, you know, this guy's not even, as far as we know, is a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet he picked up on this incredibly in a short story called The Telltale Heart, right? And if you're not familiar with it, it's a short story where the narrator, telling from you know, the first person's perspective, tells the story of how he murdered another man. Right? And, and everything that went into all of that. And then he actually hides this, the body under the planks of his floor. And so when the detectives come to investigate this murder and the disappearance of this man, right? they're, they're asking questions and all that, and they actually don't find anything suspicious. There's, there's like, you know, nothing going on. So they actually start engaging in small talk. And they're just kind of like shooting the breeze and telling each other jokes and, you know, all this kind of stuff is going on. But the entire time they're there, the narrator, right, the murderer, can hear the loud beating of this dead man's heart coming from underneath the planks of the floor. And he knows, he knows that the detectives can hear it too. And they're just messing with him. And he, can't, and he just can't take it anymore. His sin, the guilt of his sin begins to take, overtake him. Listen, this is what uh, Poe writes. It, it grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no. No, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Disassemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart, right? And so the story ends with the confession of his sin. Even though he knows the consequences, right? Even, though, even knowing his guilt, even understanding to a degree, like he had gotten away with it. The, the desire for confession was there, overwhelming. And, and I, I think what Poe has done is kind of given a little bit of commentary on our own lives. This desire to confess, this desire to, to be freed from the weight of our sins. But the question lingers, will I be forgiven? If I confess, will I be forgiven? And the way David prayers, prays in Psalm 51, look, look at his prayer is so hopeful. Verse 7, purge me 
with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's so hopeful. He, he, is, he is looking ahead to the future. How can he be so hopeful? How can he be so sure? How can he pray with such certainty? How can he pray with such hope? Well, well part, part of what we see is actually what David prays in verse 1. First, David knew God's character, right? In verse 1, David actually reminds himself and he reminds God of who God is. He reminds God of his steadfast love, right? He reminds God of his abundant mercy. And so one of the reasons David can pray with such hope with this is because he knows the character of God. He knows who God is. And so he reminds himself and he reminds God. The second thing is this, is David actually looks ahead to the fulfillment of God's promise that one day, one day, there would be one who would come and vanquish sin. There would be one who would come to set us free. And David confessed in hope. And so you see that you and I are actually afraid to confess our sin because there's still wonder about the question, will I be forgiven? If I confess this, will I, will I actually be forgiven? And what's remarkable is this. Jesus Christ is the one who never sinned. He's the one who never committed adultery. He's the one who never murdered. He's the one who never strayed from God's will in the least. Never to the left, never to the right, never doing his own thing. Always walking in step, in alignment with God's character and his will. Right? He's, he's perfect, right? He's perfect. And yet... And yet, Jesus confessed to our sin. You have to catch that. Jesus confessed to our sin. He took ownership of our shame and our humiliation. He stood condemned in our place. See, that's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first part of verse 21. He says this, For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, referring to Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Right? This, this is what David is saying, that God made Jesus sin who knew no sin, that Jesus literally, he became sin. Jesus owned our sin. And so in essence, when the prophet Nathan comes to David and declares, you are the man, Jesus steps in and says, no, I am the man. I am the man. I am the guilty. I will own and confess the sin of the entire world. Jesus says, I am the man. And so Jesus faced shame, and he faced embarrassment, and he faced humiliation, and he faced torture on the cross that was actually aimed at you and me. He takes that on himself. He took punishment he did not deserve so that we, the guilty, 
we who deserve to die, right? We, we're the ones who are the murderers. We're the ones who are the adulterers. We are the ones who have sinned against God alone, not him. But he did that so we would not be put to shame, but rather that we could be honored, rather that we could stand before God in full righteousness that was actually deposited into our account by Christ. You see, that's how that works. That, that's what 2 Corinthians 5, that's the completion of that, right? That he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. There's this overwhelmingly unfair trade taking place. Jesus takes ownership of all my sin, I take ownership of all of his righteousness. That's the transaction, and the full payment of sin has been paid. Only until you know that, only until you experience that, only until that becomes clear to you and to me, knowing that we have already been forgiven in Christ, that the question is answered, if I confess my sin, will I be forgiven? Until you can answer that with an ironclad, yes, in Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Until you can say yes, you'll never be able to truly confess your sin. But when you cross that line and you experience that truth, you can confess your sin. In fact, the Apostle John shows us that with great clarity in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Actually, I want to do this. Let's actually read that verse out loud together, starting with, if we confess. Are you ready? Go. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. Can you hear David's prayer echoing in the background. God, you are abounding. You are steadfast in love. You are abundant in mercy through Christ. All right? You're faithful and you're just. That literally Christ's sacrifice on the sin now requires God to forgive us. But it doesn't stop there, right? John goes on to say, you cleanse us. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, do, do you hear David's prayer in verse 7? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. It's almost as if John was familiar with Psalm 51. Or perhaps the same person was inspiring both men to write in real time. You see, because of what Christ has done, we can confess our sin to God with hope and even joy. Because the answer to the question is yes. It's just overwhelming yes. You, you, you will be forgiven because your sin has already been confessed through Christ. Your sin has already been owned in Christ. And our forgiveness is certain, not only forgiveness, but actually transformation of a new heart that comes through the Holy Spirit. But it begins with Faith. If you've never come to the point where you cross the line, when you put your hope, when you put your weight, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your forgiver, as your leader, you, you actually never experience that forgiveness. You never get to be able to say, yes, I have been forgiven. I have been cleansed. I have been renewed. I do have the Holy Spirit living within me. That only comes through faith in Christ. But once we know that we can be forgiven the next natural question becomes this. Well, how do I do that? 
How do I confess my sins? Well, Psalm 51, I think, gives us a pretty clear pathway that can be helpful for us to follow. And so just very quickly, we could go into depth on this, but, but we don't have the time to do that right now. If you want to talk later, I'd be happy to do that. But here's kind of just very quick pathway that, uh, that kind of gets exposed in Psalm 51 when it comes to confessing our sin. The first thing is this, when, you, when you're confessing your sin, is own your sin. You have to own your sin. Right? You have to own and acknowledge your sin. Right? No excuses. No excuses at all. Refuse to blame others for the sinful actions that you took. Right? See, true confession never holds anything back. And so you've got to own your sin. The second thing you've got to do is this, is you've got to look to Jesus. Right? This can't be about your efforts to repay God. Because you can't. <laughs> You'll never make things even between you and God. And so you've got to look to Jesus, right? You've got to rely on the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on your behalf. And you lean into his grace, and you lean into his mercy, and you praise him for his grace that he's offered you through faith. So own your sin. Secondly, look to Jesus and then third, you have to turn away from your own leadership. Resist your own leadership and turn to God's leadership instead, right? This goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. The essence of sin is stiff-arming God, and I will do this on my own. I will figure this out by myself. I will make the rules. I will set the parameters. I will set the journey and the pathway. The same way that you made the decision to sin, you also need to make the, the intentional decision to follow God instead. Right? Turning away from your own leadership and living in alignment with God's will and his character. There's one more aspect about confession that our teaching team thought was very, very important to talk about just briefly and be sure that we exposed about. See, when you and I think about confession, we tend to primarily think about in terms of confessing to God vertically. Right? I need to confess my sins to God. And that's true. Right? That's actually where it always starts. We, we have to confess our sins to God. That's what Psalm 51 points to. It's what other passages point to. And the Bible also makes clear that actually we should confess our sins horizontally. Do you know that? We should actually confess our sins horizontally. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so what this is saying is it is right to confess our sins to other growing disciples that we trust, right? Because first, you actually might need to confess your sin to the person you hurt. You might need to come to them and say, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God and I need to ask for your forgiveness, right? Jesus talks about that clearly in the Gospels. But second, you may need to confess your sins to other growing disciples that you trust in order to uh, receive a level of accountability in your journey and also to receive encouragement. Because there are times that while we, we understand intellectually, yes, Jesus has paid the price for my sin, sometimes we actually need another brother or sister to actually speak the gospel into our lives and say, you do realize you've been forgiven not because of what you've done, but rather because of who you trust and what he's done. Right? To have someone minister to you with the gospel of Jesus Christ is a very powerful and healing thing. And so don't resist confessing sin 
to another growing disciple that you trust. Let's finish out Psalm 51 because you've got to see this outflow here. Verse 13. So you've got David asking for forgiveness. It seems to be taking place. It's being applied. You come to verse 13. Then, look at the outflow here. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You have to see that confession that leads to genuine forgiveness will always move your life to an outward focus on those who are still under bondage. When you really genuinely experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, he moves your heart not only for yourself, but actually to those of others. I begin to focus less on me. I begin to focus more on you. I begin to focus more on our county. I begin to focus more on the will and the desires of God as opposed to my own, to invite others to find the same freedom that I've experienced, to let others know that as they ask the question, if I confess, will my sins be forgiven? We can answer yes, in Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone, the answer is yes. That if you turn to Christ, you will be forgiven. You might not realize this, but sharing the gospel and helping people to experience new life in Christ, that is worship. You have to know that. That is worship. It is worship to share the gospel. It is worship to watch somebody be born again. It may be one of the highest forms of worship that we will experience in this world. Now, it'll be fully realized that worship will be completely unleashed when we're in heaven and in eternity. But perhaps sharing the gospel Perhaps watching someone being born again, passing out of death and into life may be one of the highest forms of worship that we have to offer in this life. Pointing other lost sheep to hope in Christ alone. People with broken spirits and contrite hearts finding new life in Christ. We can confess our sin to God and he'll lead us to confess the goodness of God to others as well. It's the natural progression. So I want you to imagine for a moment, just in your own life, imagine like experiencing forgiveness for real, right? Like experiencing real forgiveness from the guilt and the weight of your sin. Imagine rather than running from God when you blow it, you run to God, seeking him. Imagine walking upright because you're no longer burdened by the tonnage of what's facing, staring you in the face constantly. Imagine sharing with others the grace that God offers and seeing their lives transformed through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You can confess 
your sin to God. In Christ, you are forgiven. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we end every message the same way. And it's simply asking this question, Jesus, what are you saying to me right now? And I want you to take just a moment to listen to what he may be saying to you. Father, we bless you that we in no way can stand before you on our own. But we can actually only come before you in hope and in confidence because of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. That he has literally opened, he has split open the curtain. He has opened the door. He has made the high places low and the low places high so that we can have a smooth walkway and pathway to you alone. We thank you for that gift. We know that that is only because of your great love, your steadfast love, your abounding mercy that we can come to you. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give every person here on campus, every person in our online campus, I want to give you an opportunity that maybe this week you haven't at all. I want to give you an opportunity to simply confess to your father, to to be straight up, to own your sin, to look to Jesus, to turn away from your own leadership and turn towards God's leadership. And so I just want to give everybody a moment. This is a prime moment to just like confess, like tell God, own it, put it straight forward and put your trust in Christ. Father, we confess that too often we ignore our own sin. Father, we confess that that too often we, we actually listen to the counsel of others or what resides in our own mind and our own heart as opposed to trusting in your counsel through scripture, through your Holy Spirit. God, we confess that, that our hearts are prone to turn inward to self-leadership, to to self-glorification, to to pleasing ourselves, to focusing ourselves, to taking care of ourselves, even if it's in a weird way where we overwhelmingly serve others in hopes that they'll love us, overwhelmingly take care of others, that they'll respect us and honor us. We confess that, that though we have been made in your image, many times we have rejected that to be made in our own image or to be made in the world's image. We confess that we have said words that have hurt other people. We have taken actions that have oppressed others, that have pushed them down, that have excluded and ignored them. 
And we confess that the only way that those can be overcome is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we confess that Jesus is the true Savior and the true Lord. And we confess that it is only by Christ that anyone can come to the Father. There is no other way. And we confess that He is the way, that He is the truth, that He is the life. And we confess that He is the vine and we are the branches. We confess that He is the good shepherd and we are His sheep who recognize His voice. We confess that he is the one through whom all of creation has been created and brought good pleasure to the Father. We confess that he is the Lagos, that he is the word who has made the Father clearly known to us. We recognize that it is he who holds the name that is above every other name, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he He is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we confess that we stand righteous, not on our own behalf, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And we praise you, and we worship you, and we celebrate you for that good gift which you have given to us. And we would pray that you would empower us with your spirit to go. You would empower us with your spirit to share with clarity and humility and genuine love the hope that comes through Christ alone to the glory of your name. Use us for your will and for your purposes that bring you joy and that bring you pleasure. And we pray all of these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen and amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 9.09 or 11.11. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.